All right. So we are, um, we're continuing our series this morning called Follow, uh, Journeying Toward Life in Christ. And uh, you'll notice, uh, if you re- recall a couple weeks ago when I introduced this series, um, I just felt that God was bringing it on uh, my heart to just share with you, in no uncertain terms, our vision for what it looks like moving forward as a church. And what ultimately what we came down to, what, what, what I was compelled that we needed to be is a community of people that have Christ at the center of our lives. And as a result, we are committed together to follow after Jesus. And honestly, I just can't think of anything else that we should be doing as a church. I mean, all the other stuff follows. All the rest of it, it comes alongside. It's peripheral, it helps, it's good. But if we're not doing that one thing, if we're not chasing after God, then none of of it makes any sense. We have to do that one thing. See, as a church, we are a community of people and we claim Christ as the center of our lives. Amen? That's the goal. That's kind of why we're here. If not, then we're claiming, we're claiming something else. We're exploring God. We're, we're creating a forum to get the idea about God. But we can't necessarily call ourselves a church in that capacity. We could be a philosophical emporium. We could be an idea center. We could be a, a brain trust. All those, but we're not a church if we're not centered, if we're not claiming at least that we're centered upon Christ at the center of our lives. And that means necessarily if we claim that, then we are a community that is changed by God. We are adopted as his family and we are called to follow in the footsteps of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is our identity. That is why we're here. We are children of God who seek after the love and forgiveness and protection and leadership of a good father. And so that means ultimately is that at the core of who we are, we are simply seeking to become followers of Jesus who as a result of following Jesus, seek also to call other people to become followers of Jesus. That's the whole point. But then that begs the question, obviously, what does it actually mean to follow and how do we get there? So following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, can ultimately be broken down into six different properties, six phases of action. And so we can understand better how closely we are at following him or where we're struggling with following him based on how we're doing in each of these three phases. See, as disciples of Jesus, as members of his family, we are called to these six things. We are called to believe. We are called to repent. We are called to follow. We are called to remain, to share, and to multiply. The purpose of our series over the next few weeks is to walk through each of these phases, to look inward to our own lives, and then as a result, to lean into this 
process to get to the heart of the matter, which is simply and unashamedly, once again, to chase after God with everything that we are and everything that we have. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. So last week we talked about step one. What does it mean to believe? We looked at the beginning of God's story, Genesis 1, chapters 1 through 3, and we encountered these three voices. Remember, there are, there are three voices that are constantly speaking to us, and they're calling out to you, and they're vying for your attention, and they're speaking into your life. First, God is speaking to you. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty easy one from, the, from chapter 1 we can gather. God is speaking And he's revealing in that, he's revealing his goodness, he's revealing his creativity, he's declaring his power and his love and his care, and he's calling after you to follow him. He doesn't, he doesn't explain much, he doesn't always say why, but he doesn't need to because he's God. That's the idea. He's God, we're not. He doesn't need to explain himself to us. He can declare it. We follow. We trust in him because he's a good father that knows our interests, that has our best interests in heart. We trust that he's going to care for us. We trust that he's going to have our backs. And so when he says something, we go. We believe him. And so what he's asking ultimately is for us to take him at his word to believe him that what he says he is, he actually is, and how much he cares, he actually does care. But our challenge and our struggle to believe occurs when instead of choosing to listen to, to God and trust in, in God and believe in what God is saying, and to take him at his word, we listen to other voices the voice of the serpent, the voice of the adversary, the world, and then the voice that's in our own head, the voice of ourselves. See, the adversary is causing us then to question God's call, God's laws, God's order, God's love, God's goodness. The adversary is pushing you to place your trust and your hope in anything other than God. And what he does is he plants this seed of fear in you. Fear of falling behind. Fear of losing control. Fear of not being fulfilled. Fear of failure. And then in, ad in addition, there's this inner voice that's coming from within you that's speaking to your impulses and your desires and your, your emotions. And it's it's pushing on that, that quest for power and control to hold on to something else. The voice of yourself, it doesn't necessarily plant the seed of the fear, but it does a really good job of watering it, cultivating it, tending to it, helping it grow into a very healthy fear. That's a very unhealthy fear, ultimately. Both of those voices are going to lead to doubt and uncertainty 
in this loving and gracious and strong Father. And ultimately what happens is they move the center of our faith and our trust and our belief away from God and toward anything other than God. Anything other than God. And yet, amidst all of that, amidst all the clamor and the chaos and the noise, amidst all the voices that are shouting for your attention, God continues to speak to you. He continues to speak to you. He continues to reveal himself in creation, to reveal himself in his word. He reveals himself through our community as we speak together. And he calls you to believe in him, to trust him, to have faith that he is who he says he is, that God is great, that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is glorious. Belief in God, the belief that initiates ultimately our journey to follow after him, to chase after him, ultimately means reorienting our life around, not around us, but around God as the center of everything. Step one of following is to believe. Step two is to repent. Now, belief, that's a word that we hear everywhere. We, we hear belief. We know what belief means, right? It's a really common word. We understand the idea of believing in something or someone. We actually hear it all the time in our culture. Most of the time, it's believe in yourself, right? But we know what that means. And it's pretty easy for us to go, I know what believe in myself means. I can probably take that basic root of understanding and say, I believe in God also. That belief is one that we can get. But repentance, that's another story. Repentance is not a, use, a word that we use very often. And I think the reason why we don't use the word repentance is because often it implies a lot of things that we don't want to hear. Repentance means that something is broken. Repentance means that something is faulty or wrong or misguided or that there's evil that needs to be repaired or fixed or changed. And while it's, it can be easier or easier to get going on the idea that there's something amazing we should be believing in, that's really positive. It's easy for us to go, there's something we should believe in. It's, a, it's entirely another thing, and it's not nearly as easy to face the reality that is a big part of the reason why we need to put our trust in something or someone else. And the reason being is because we, have failed so miserably at it ourselves. So I just need to warn you right at the beginning here, this is not a sunshine and rainbows sermon. This is not a happy, positive sermon. Not at all. This is a... But in the midst of that, it is still a necessary and vital step. You cannot move forward in following after God until you understand what it means to repent. So are you ready? All right, let's do it. So last week we ended in Genesis chapter 3. And, and remember, Genesis 1 through 3, this is life inside the garden. 
inside this garden. At the very beginning of creation, God, he sets up this beautiful world with life and and vibrancy and color, and it's got room for expansion and growth and cultivation, and you've got this God, and and he says he's ruling. He's reigning over everything, right? He's ruling over every square inch of his good creation. And humans are also created, and they're created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean, image of God? It means that we were meant to be many representatives of God on the earth. To be an image of God, same word that they would that, that kings in, in, in ancient times would use to say when they come in and they rule a country, they would place an image of themselves, a statue, an idol of themselves to remind everybody else who's in charge. That same word is what is used when man is created and it says, I'm creating you in the image of God. You are essentially an idol of me an image representing a statue pointing people to who is in charge, and that is God. That's why we were here on the earth. You were created, humans were created as agents of the creator. So you were created in that way to co-rule alongside God, with God, under God, to help spread goodness, and cultivate life and expand beauty. What does God say? He says, go forth and subdue the earth. Have dominion over it. Rule the earth. You are meant to be rulers. And so at the center of this garden, there's this place called Eden. Eden. And, and Eden is, it means literally Luxury. That's what, that's what Eden means. It means luxury. Inside this garden, there is no fear. There is no insecurity. There's no burdens. There's no shame. Why? Because God is there. God is there. God is present. He's ruling over everything. And when God is there and he's present, that means that the whole of this creation is going to be in line with the character of God himself. If God is good and he's peaceful and he's joyful and he's, he's whole and he's loving, creation is going to respond the same way in his presence. Where God rules, his creation reacts. But as we read last week, the man and the woman, these humans who at their core represent all of us, choose to listen and to believe a voice that is other than their creator. And ultimately, they break their good intentions. They break the trust and the peace and the joy that is found in the garden. And for the rest of their days, and even now, life is no longer lived inside this garden. Life is lived outside the garden in a way that God never intended life to be lived, is characterized by fear. Fear. God still rules over all things, but the book of Romans says that in our rejection of God, 
We are handed over to our own desires, to our own impulses, to our own merit. We are outside of God's rule and reign, left to our own to deal with our sin and to struggle with life. God tells the man and the woman in Genesis 3 that in your life outside the garden, you will have to toil and work to get food. You will have to be concerned about getting old. Your body is going to break down. You're going to have to to be concerned about things like cancer and, and mental illness, about this inevitable wasting away of your body, of your mind, of your whole life. You're going to have to be afraid of that. You're going to fear death. You're going to fear that wasting. You're going to fear returning to dust. God also says you're going to suffer emotional, relational pain. You'll fear losing things that you love. You're going to lose that perfect relationship with your spouse. You're going to lose the relationship with your family. You'll fear losing possessions. You'll fear losing your life. You will fear not getting the things that you want or that you desire. You'll fear the unknown. You'll fear the unexpected. And the harsh reality behind what God is saying is that the reason why we have all these fears and these concerns is not because God is forcing it on us. I think we misread the Bible when we think that God is forcing curses upon us. We have brought it upon ourselves. The harsh reality that we have to face is that we have brought it upon ourselves. We should be afraid of life outside the garden. It is a natural thing to fear. Because without trusting completely and wholly in what God is saying to us, without believing fully that there is a God who says, who is who he says he is and does what he says he will do and cares exactly how he says he cares, we will be forever bound and controlled by a fear of unmet needs, unmet expectations, unmet goals, dissatisfaction, pain, sorrow, suffering, and death. But until we are willing to give up every ounce of control to God, this fear will continue to rule. Now, when we are faced with fear, when you are faced with these fears, I would submit to you, there are three possible responses that you can have. Three responses. And we're going to look at another story in the book of Genesis uh, today, and it's going to help us hopefully understand these responses. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 27. And just sort of like keep your, keep your eyes on the page, because we're going to kind of fly through about, I don't know, six chapters. But this part of the narrative is so important for us to understand what this means. So we're going to look at uh, the account of a man named Jacob. A man named Jacob. So this is my, this is my namesake here in the book of Genesis. And for the most part, I would say I'm actually good with the name Jacob. 
I, I like the name. Jacob is one of the more well-known characters in the Bible. Uh, of course, God is the central character of our story, right? God is the central character. We know that. Why? Because uh, all the other characters die. Sort of a good telling point. When everybody else dies, but the one guy stays, you're pretty sure that's about him, right? So God is certainly the central character of the story, but this other guy, he ranks pretty high up there in terms of supporting cast. Jacob is, is pretty well known in that. The nation of Israel is Jacob's family. But just because Jacob is famous, we need to understand that just because characters are well-known, that doesn't make them heroes. Jacob is no hero in the Bible. What is the point of characters in the Bible? What is the point of these people that we keep reading about as we go through? They're not there to give us models of ideal humans that we should be living up to. They are mirrors of our own selves, reflecting our faults and our failures and our imperfections right back at us. And when we look at them and we see their struggles and we see their sins and we see their root issues, that causes us to say, those are my sins. Those are my struggles. Those are my root issues. And their salvation is also my salvation. That's why we read about those characters in the Bible. Not to learn from them, but to learn about ourselves in the process. Now I said, I'm pretty good with the name Jacob, but there's... There's one thing that I wish was different, and that's the, the definition of the name Jacob. Jacob literally means heel grabber. Not very impressive. I, I don't know about you. I always wanted a name that was like king or man, but it's heel grabber. Deceiver is another word for it. Awesome. I, I love it. Not awesome. But this is who Jacob is in the Bible. There's no getting around it. Jacob is a deceiver. He lies and he cheats and he tricks his way into getting what he wants. Now, what does Jacob want more than anything else in this story? What does Jacob want more than anything else? He wants the blessing of the inheritance of his father. See, in these days, the custom was to pass on your wealth and your land and, and your inheritance onto the oldest son. And the eldest son is the next in line and, and he takes care of the family and he takes on the responsibility for carrying on the name and the legacy and building upon that foundation. And Jacob, Jacob's like, yeah, I want that. I, that's high honor. It's a high respect. It's high glory. But there's a problem with that plan. Jacob has a twin brother, and he's an older twin brother. I mean, but just barely older. I mean, so close that, like, as, as Esau, his brother, is coming out of the womb, Jacob's literally grabbing the heel as he comes back out. He's like, and me too. Like, seconds between them. Uh, it's, it's just, if I were that way, I'd be like, he gets the oldest because of, like, two seconds? That doesn't seem fair to me. 
I don't know. I, I kind of get where Jacob is going with all of this. I mean, for his whole life, he's just literally looking at his brother going, I missed out by two seconds on all the glory and the honor and the blessings and the inheritance, everything. I, uh, two seconds, I was this close. It even says or in, in uh, chapter 26, inside the womb, Jacob and Esau are literally struggling with each other. It's like they're fighting to see inside the womb who gets out first. Esau wins because he's a burly man. We know that later. Esau wins. So Jacob completely misses out as a result on the blessings of inheritance and land and prosperity and honor. So Jacob, he's dealing with all this unfairness and this injustice right up to the time when his father is old and blind and feeble and near death. And so what happens is this fear of loss creeps in. When my father dies, it's all gone. The loss of a blessing that probably should have been his. And so fear initiates, causes, prompts Jacob's deception. He's not a deceiver until this point. But that fear causes a response in Jacob. And that response is to fight. His gut choice is to fight fear. So what does Jacob do? He forces Esau to trade him his birthright for a bowl of stew. I mean, he's a smart guy. And then he dresses up like his brother and like puts fur on his arms to, to look like, to feel like him and, and to try to deepen his voice to sound like him, right? And, and he, he convinces his weak-eyed dad that he is actually Esau and tricks his father Isaac into giving him the blessing instead. And rather than accepting his position as secondborn, rather than depending on his family to watch over him and to provide for him and protect him, Jacob chooses to fight and take it for himself. Fear of loss causes Jacob to fight, to reject his place as secondborn and take what he wants. See, another word for this idea of fighting is pride. Another word for fight here is pride. See, deep down, we feel like we don't need someone to take care of us, to provide for us, to protect us. And the reason why fight or pride wells up inside of us and sprints out is when fear presents itself is the fact that by nature, humans, we do not revel in our own failures. We don't enjoy looking at our failure. If pride is your gut response, you are going to reject the good news of God, the gospel of God. Why? Because you don't need it. If you are a prideful person, you will not accept the gospel of Jesus because you don't need it. You might want it. You might like it. You could take it or leave it, but you don't desperately need it. 
And so what happens then is you can take the teachings that you like. You can take the ones that make you feel good. You can take the ones that give you lots of happy thoughts and, and warm, fuzzy feelings inside. Uh, you can take the wise words that justify all your hard work and your effort. And then you can toss out the ones that you don't like, the ones that cut to the heart, the ones that declare that anyone who is a child of God, who is not a child of God, is actually an enemy of God. You can take out the ones that declare that a God of joy and hope and love is also a God of wrath. He's a jealous God. He's a just God. See, those teachings don't jive well with a proud person. When Jesus came to earth and he began preaching, what did he first say? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And for the people he was preaching that to, see, they knew God's laws. They knew his plans. They knew that they needed a Messiah. Their question was, is that the Messiah that we need? Their their question wasn't, do I need him or not? Their question was, we know we need him. Is he the guy? But I don't think that's always our question. I don't think our question is, do I need a Messiah? I think most of the time for us, it, we're not assessing whether or not we need Jesus. We're assessing whether or not we want him. Do I want to add him in? Is he a good fit for me? Not do I desperately need him. If you are a proud person and your sin is exposed before you, how are you going to respond? you'll probably say something like, I didn't know it was wrong. It's not that bad. It'll work out for itself. It's not really fair even. It's actually not even my fault. When pride is your gut response, you will do whatever it takes to minimize your sin and its effects. And for a while, you'll still feel better, but fear still has a hold of you. Fighting against a just God will not bring you life. Because in the end, you have positioned yourself as an enemy of God. And I guarantee you, you will lose that fight. So back to Jacob. He, he fought his way to blessing, right? He won the inheritance with deception and cunning, he, he won it. He fought and he won. But it, it doesn't exactly go over well. Um, verse, chapter 27, uh, Esau, he, he, he realizes this and he says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I don't think that is metaphor or hyperbole. The only way that Esau is going to feel better is by killing his brother. What is Esau's response to the fear of losing control and possessions and safety and security? Fight. Definitely 100% fight. All the way on that side. So now Jacob, he, he, he thought he'd conquered some fears and now he has a whole new fear. The fear of getting completely pummeled and obliterated by his older brother. 
So now a new response has come to the surface. Run. Run away. Jacob, he has to run. He has to fly and flee and run and get away and start a family and build a totally new life somewhere else. So Jacob abandons everything. He leaves behind his father and his mother, definitely his brother, right? And I think he he sort of figures, if I leave now, if I run away, I can preserve myself. I can stay alive. I won't have that fear of losing my life because I will have escaped it, right? And if you read through verses, or chapters 28 through 31, you'll notice it, it doesn't really go that great for him. It, there's more deception. He gets tricked more often. It, life is, is happening, but it's definitely not the blessings that God would have had. But then in chapter 32, Jacob, he's, he's returning from his uncle's land where he was staying. And he's going back to his family and he hears that Esau is coming for him. And Esau has 400 men with him. And Jacob is terrified. He is terrified. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. It says he divided the people with him into two camps along with the flocks, herds, and camels. And he thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Jacob is back to running. He does not fight. He flees. Sort of. But he does flee. He takes his his wealth and he divides it in half. And and he says if Esau comes, he can have have half of it. That's fine. I'll cut my losses. At least, at least I, I've escaped again with my life. And he'd rather take that portion of his wealth and even give it to Esau as a gift if it means that he can be safe. Now, this is not fighting. This is definitely flight response. Fight or flight. He's definitely fleeing. Another word for flight. If, if, if we can see fighting as, as a, a sense of pride, as related to pride, then we can also look at fleeing as related to despair. You might not struggle with justifying or ignoring your failures, but you actually might be the opposite of that. You may have no problem at all acknowledging your failure, and yet you can still avoid repentance even in that state. Because while pride says, it's not my fault, despair says, it's all my fault. Everything is my fault. If despair is your default setting, you will sit so far deep in your sin and guilt that you will never get out of it. You are too bad, too far gone, too hopeless. You cannot have, like your father could never offer you forgiveness without proof of righteousness. And if you are a despairing person, if this sounds like you, and your sin is exposed before you, how will you respond? It's all my fault. It's way too bad. I'll never figure things out. 
I should have known better. I'm so much worse than everybody else. I'm too broken to be fixed. While a proud person does everything within his power to minimize sin and its effects, a despairing person does everything in power to maximize sin and its effects. Despair is the emotion that keeps us wallowing in our own sin sickness because we don't believe that there is a father who has open arms, who is waiting for us, who is drawing us back to him. So we run. But we cannot escape God. And at the end of the day, just like those who choose to fight, those who are not with God are against him. Those who choose to go it alone will be judged by their works and they won't measure up. And God says that his wrath is stored up for those who go their own way. There is no middle ground here. Children follow. Enemies fight and flee. Children follow. Enemies fight and flee. Are you a child of God? Or are you an enemy of God? There is no in-between. There's one more response to fear. While Jacob, he's waiting, chapter 32, he's waiting at the edge of the camp, and he's desperately hoping that rightful, rightful vengeance will not be exacted on him somehow, some way, in his own power, they're, they're all of a sudden, there's this just incredible thing that happens. Jacob, while he's alone, it's night, and this man just comes out of nowhere and starts wrestling with him. Just starts fighting him on the ground. Just random. And, and they just, all night long, they just continue to struggle, they continue to fight. All night long. And Jacob, he refuses to back down. At one point, this, this guy, we actually don't, like, he just seems like a random guy at this point in the story. He, Jacob's not letting him go. They're still fighting. So the guy, he takes his hand and he touches his hip and he knocks the whole thing out of a socket. I don't know how that works. Just magically, his, his, he just gets dislocated from his hip. And I don't know about you. Have you ever had something dislocated from your body? It's not like, oh, well, my hip got dislocated. Like, it's an unbelievably unpleasant thing. It is a painful experience. But Jacob refuses to quit. He refuses to quit. So finally, the guy stops fighting. He says, what is your name? Jacob says, my name is Jacob. I'm a heel grabber. I'm a deceiver. The guy says, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is now Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with man, and you have prevailed. We realize all of a sudden in our story, this is no man that, God is, that Jacob is fighting. He is wrestling with God. And he lived. He lived. That's a big part of the story, guys. He wrestled with God, and he lived. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. What we do not need to take from this story is that 
You can wrestle with God and you can fight him and you can win and you can get your own way. That is not what the story is telling us. This is actually, this is not a story about how awesome Jacob was and he like beat up on a weak God and he got his own way. That is not the story. It is not you and your own will prevailing. This is a story about how the all-powerful God of the universe has every ability and every right to break Jacob, to crush him, to destroy him, and yet he doesn't. God lets Jacob wrestle with him, and God lets him live. He lets him live. He shows mercy on him. And if you'll notice, from this point forward, the whole tenor of the story changes. Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Jacob is not proud. Jacob is not despairing. He's grateful. He's grateful. He's thankful. He's humbled. His name changes to Israel, which literally means fights with God. Israel means fights with God. And yet now, what you'll see is, he, does, he stops fighting with God as his enemy, fighting against God, and he starts fighting with God alongside God as his ally. So right after this, chapter 33, Jacob, he goes to meet Esau, and Jacob bows before Esau. And Esau, what does he do? Does he run up and fight? He runs up and embraces him as his brother. There is no fight in Esau. There is no fleeing by Jacob. This is brothers. Jacob cries out to Esau. He says, I have seen your face. And it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was bought to you because God has been gracious to me and I have everything that I need. Jacob doesn't ask the gift and say, please take this gift and don't kill me in return. Jacob says, give this gift because I love you. I have seen your face and it is like God's face when he saw me and yet I lived. He spared me. In the end, Jacob chooses repentance. Jacob chooses the third response, repentance. Now here's what I mean when I'm saying repentance. I've said this word a lot, but I haven't really defined it for us yet. Repentance is where we come to grips with our sin, where we grieve our sin, where we recognize our utter deficiency to honor God on our own and to turn from him for help. Repentance is recognizing that you need God, not just that you want him, but that you need him. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and the church there, they are just, they are so messed up that Paul, he's got to just dress them up and down with these corrections and rebukes and, and just, sometimes that happens. Sometimes correction and rebuke are just necessary. 
But then Paul says this, even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For, what, for you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what injustice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. See, if we truly, actually grasp the wrath, the truth of the wrath of God, that God is a wrathful God, that he has every right to be angry with us, and to be justice, and to have justice and exert justice in this world and over us for what we have done we will inevitably grieve all of the times that we have walked away, that we have fought him, that we have pushed him away, that we have kept him at arm's length. Grief that points us to our need for God will lead us to repent. Worldly grief, Paul says, will point us to something else entirely. Worldly grief will stir up feelings of anger, resentment, dissension, frustration, but it will not lead to life. You will not experience freedom from sin until you claim that sin as your own. If you pass over your sin, or if you wallow in your sin, you will remain bound to it. God calls us to repent. In the Bible, there are three different words for repentance. So the first is a Hebrew word, meaning it's a nacham, and it means to regret, to be sorry. And it means that you sigh and you moan about your sin. You cry over it. But how often, we're, we're pretty good at that understanding of grief, that grief is about moaning and crying and sighing over our sin. But how often, instead of moaning over the, the sin, sighing about the, the sin, we moan and sigh about the consequences of sin. That's, that's more of the temptation for us to do. Are you sorry for what you've done or sorry that you got caught? Am I sorry for what I've done or I'm sorry that it, it, I have to pay the consequences for it. The temptation for us is to love the sin and hate the consequence. God calls us instead to hate the sin and accept the consequence. So the second term, the first term, naham, to moan or sigh over our sins. 
The second word is another Hebrew word, and it says shuv, shuv. And that literally means to turn. That's all it means, physically turn. So this means that we're not only called to grieve over our sin, we're not only called to moan and sigh over it, but that we actually turn away from it. And we turn toward life in Christ. Now that's, that's an important detail. Often we look at, 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 we have to turn away from my sin to not sin. That's incomplete. That's only half. If you turn away from your sin, if you're constantly turning away from your sin, what are you turning toward? How long can you keep that going? How long can you run from sin? God is not interested only in apologies for us to mourn and say, ah, I'm so sad. And he's not also just asking for us to press the pause button on bad behavior or to stop the things that we shouldn't be doing. It's actually turning your face away from sin and death and toward life in Christ. Deep down in all of our sin, the problem did not start when you began doing bad things. Your sin is not a result of you starting to do bad things, and the cure for sin is not stop doing bad things. It's not that easy. You are treating the, the symptoms, not the cause. The problem starts when we turned our back on God to worship something other than him. The problem begins when our utmost, our deepest desire is something other than him. Jacob's issue does not begin when he started deceiving. That was a good sign. It was telling. But that's not where his issue began. It started when he began to value the blessing over the person giving the blessing, over the one who would give it. When he stopped dishonoring the one giving the blessings and started desiring the blessing first over Your sin began when you turned your back on God. And you can only be redeemed and restored, therefore, when you turn back to God, when you return to him. If you make your life and Christianity and religion all about stopping bad behaviors and living a better life, then you're going to get into this cycle of just trying to live differently in order to fix yourself. And instead of fighting God, you fight sin. Well, that seems nicer. It has a prettier shine to it. It's, it doesn't seem as bad. I'm not fighting God. I'm just fighting sin. But what's the, what's the issue? You're still focused on your sin. You're not loving your sin. You're fighting your sin. But the focus is still on the sin. It's not focused on God. The gospel does not say, grieve over your sin and fix yourself. It says, grieve your sin and turn toward God and God will be with you 
and he will work on you and he will challenge you and he will show you the way. When you are facing your sin, all that you will ultimately find is a problem with no answers. You are outside the garden. You are outside of life. Repentance. Turning toward God. Shooving toward God. Means hating the sin and accepting the consequences. And the good news, though, is that when you do turn to face God, you will not find a God of wrath. You'll find the smiling face of a loving father who embraces you with open arms. There's one last term uh, in the Bible for repentance, and it's this Greek term that me- that's uh, metanoia. Metanoia. And literally it means a transformation, meta, of the mind, noia. And it means ultimately, uh, to borrow from Apple, Think different. Think differently than you ever have before. Your mind needs to undergo a radical and complete shift and transformation to understand when it all comes down to it, the story is not about you. It's not about your ability to overcome sin. It's not about your ability to win the battle against your own failure. It's not even about your ability to escape and elude punishment or capture for your failure. It's about recognizing your great, overwhelming need for Jesus. Stop fighting him. Stop running from him. Start trusting him. No one is too good or too bad to receive the gift of grace offered by God through his son. It means dying to yourself and becoming totally different. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, repentance means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death so that you can live. It seems backwards, but that's what it is. To undergo a kind of death so that you can live. You have three options. You have three options when you experience fear. You can fight, you can flee, or you can repent. If you repent, I will just say this, if you choose to repent, you will never have to fight or flee ever again. Do you want Jesus or do you need him? Do you want Jesus or do you need Stop fighting. Stop running. Start trusting. Amen.